Hey, man, it's going to wake everybody up a little bit. <laughs> Leave for a week, and what happens, man? This dude's a, up here preaching and testifying. I can't leave anymore. <clears throat> so I'm happy to see everybody's faces. I missed you guys. We, we were gone for a week. Uh, I'm happier probably than anybody to be in church today again and, and just to be with you guys. Um, we plan these times away now. You know, the first few years of, of the church, uh, we never planned to be away from this place. We're here every week, every service, and the only time that we would not be here is when physically my body would break down and Mary's body would break down, and we'd just be at each other's throats, and then they'd say, hey, take a day off, and, and we'd stay away. And then we'd just run as hard as we could again until we pass out and, and have to stay away for a little while. But now, thank God, a, a little bit of maturity and, and some of the other leaders encouraging us and discipling us and... And we take these scheduled times off now, about three times a year, we'll, we'll not be here for a Sunday. The, the challenge is now we're not tired, we're not exhausted, we want to be here, and it's basically like they're kicking us out, we can't come to service. But I guess it's better that way to be refreshed and, and not wait till, till we're dying to, to take some time off. However, uh, there's no place like home, and we missed you guys, we love you guys, and uh, uh, glad to be back. The time with our family, though, was, was really special. Another thing that we usually do when we have a vacation in the summer or something, we try to take off and go somewhere. And many of you have probably experienced this when you have vacation, but you go back to work more tired than you were when you left because you ran so hard, you tried to do everything. And uh, this year, we decided not to do that. We, we had a staycation, apparently, is what it's called, when you can't go nowhere or you don't go nowhere. So we, we did that, we stayed home, we stayed local, and we actually got to spend time with the kids and actually got to just talk and enjoy each other. A lot of you know that, that I'm a, a big movie fan, so I think we saw every, every movie out there. I took Nate by himself, I took the kids by themselves, I took Mary once by herself. I just wanted to be uh, together with the family, enjoying some, some time away from here. So it was good, but, but again, glad to be back. <clears throat> Another thing that we did is we talked a lot about the church. We prayed a lot, we read, we had an opportunity to think about things when you're going so fast with the church. Uh, sometimes it's just week to week, service to service, so to, to take a step back and to look and to hear from the leaders about the ministry and about Wednesday night service and about Sunday morning service and all the things that God was doing. One thing that God really put on, on my heart and on Mary's heart is, is to, uh, to tell you how much we love you, to thank you for everything that you do. Every person who's a part of this church, especially those who are in ministry, who labor with us, who sacrifice with us, who teach the kids, who clean the church, who, uh, who lead ministries like 31 Status and Sidewalk Sanctuary, who are, who are uh, carrying burdens that the Lord has placed on them, that, uh, that all that weight doesn't fall on us, to be gone and to know that God was moving here and that the place wasn't burning down and that people cared. I can't express to you how important that is for something that we've given our lives to. We've all given our lives to the Lord, but when he calls you to a particular place, a lot of times you feel like you're the only one who, who loves that thing so much, but uh, that's changed in this church. There's people who love the Lord and also love being here, and we're grateful for you guys, so I want to thank you. And, uh, and with that, I want to I pray over this morning's message. If you don't mind, can we stand? Let's stand for the Lord. Let's pray together. It's like, it's like my wife, she, she hears my voice all the time, and the Lord does as well. He wants to hear from all of us. So I, I think the prayer this morning as, as we pray is that God would move, but that he would hear all of us compelling him and crying out to him that he would move. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. We thank you for this opportunity to lift up our voices and to worship you, Father God, to be engaged in what you're doing, what your plan and your purposes are for every individual, Lord God, but also for your church and for this world, Lord, that we're a part of that. We're not bystanders, Lord God. We're not outside witnessing what you're doing, Lord. We are engaged, Lord, actively pursuing you, Lord, being launched out and sent out to accomplish things in your name, Lord, being changed and transformed from the inside out. Our desire this morning is that you would be alive, Lord, that you would minister to us, that your word would jump off of the pages and into our hearts, Lord, that we would see you in a way that maybe we haven't seen you before, Lord, that we would feel that touch, that maybe we do know that comforting touch that you have for us, Lord God, that we would feel it here in this place this morning, Lord, that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, Lord God, that you would have a canvas in order to be able to, to pin your word on in our hearts and in our minds this morning, Lord, that we would not come in one way and leave the same way, Lord. Our desire, we didn't come here just to gather. We didn't come here just to sing a few songs. We came to encounter the living God and be changed, Lord. 
Let that be done here in this place, in this precious few minutes that we have together, Lord. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. amen. You can be seated. So we're in the third week of our series on deliverance. It'll, it'll come up here in a second. Uh, uh, the definition of deliverance is, number one, liberation, to be liberated, right? Number two, it's the action of being rescued or set free. So deliverance is about being liberated, to be rescued, to be set free, to be bound, to be imprisoned. And in this process, it's an action word that something actually happens and you're set free. You're loose from whatever prison that might be. During, uh, during worship, we sang, uh, there's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, right? To open every prison door, to, to liberate us or to set us free, that the power is actually in Jesus. It's not in going to church. It's not in knowing who he is or what his word says. It's actually encountering him and his power. So I had this picture of, uh, of an elephant during worship when we're singing that song. It might have something to do with the fact that I was at the zoo on Friday. <laughs> I'm not sure, but had a picture of an elephant, and many of you have heard this story about how an elephant, the way that they're trained is from the time that they're a baby, they nail a stake into the ground, they tie a chain or a rope to that stake, right? And then the baby tries to walk away, and it realizes it's not strong enough to get past that stake. They've got two or three feet, right? And then as the elephant grows, because they've been conditioned in their mind so long, when they're a full-grown giant elephant, that same stake with that same weak rope has them bound to the stake. Even though they're so big and so strong, they could walk away and be free if they wanted to be. Their mind, they're in a prison for their mind. They will not go longer than that rope will allow them to go. See, the thing about the deliverance of God is, number one, yes, he will oftentimes come in and break every chain, set you free. So you look and the rope is broken. The stake is pulled out already, right? That chain is cut in half and you're set free. There's other times where he says, I've grown you. I've matured you. I've strengthened you. You are no longer a child that needs to be bound by the devil. You are a strong, powerful man or woman of God. And if you would just look at who I've created you to be, you could walk away from this. Literally, if you just walk away from some of these things in your life, you'd be delivered. Amen. He breaks every chain and he strengthens us in order to allow us to be delivered. There's got to be some effort on our part sometimes. So week three, right? Number one, in week one, the message was titled, titled Hard Knock Life, and we looked at deliverance from sin and condemnation, being condemned by sin. Revelation 3.20, we saw, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If anyone, say anyone. anyone. That includes you, includes me. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. We saw that we oftentimes live that hard knock life because, right, we've grown deaf to the sound of the Lord knocking and our hearts have grown hard. It's not that he's not there. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he doesn't love us. It's the fact that we truly have gone deaf and our hearts are so hard as adults. Mary and I forgot what we were talking about. She, she either read something, heard something, and it talked about, oh, she wasn't reading or hearing. She was praying. <laughs> And she said that she felt like God was telling her, man, with, with adults, so, we, so often our hearts are hardened and we're deaf. We will not listen. We will not change. We will not let somebody speak into our life. We will not be discipled. We will not allow God to use men or women to minister to us. She, but she said that she felt the Lord saying that with children, they're pliable and they want God and they want direction and they want help, right? We live the hard knock life oftentimes because we just say, I don't, I don't hear you. And even though I hear the knock, I'm going to ignore it. We allow our hearts to be hardened. We talked about the primary deliverance that God offers is deliverance from sin itself. Many of us came in here this morning with issues. You heard about Jericho. The whole point of our Jericho conference, like uh, Gary said, is figure out what your issues are. Jericho was a fortified city that even though they were the children of God, they dominated every other nation that they began to, to overtake and take the promised land back. But Jericho, they couldn't get victory. They couldn't get in there. So what it was is it was an impenetrable area for them that God had to do a miracle in in order to give them what, what he had for them. Jericho for me and Jericho for you is similar to that, where you've seen God do a lot in your relationship or in your kids or at work or whatever it might be, but we all know there's some area of our life where it's fortified, right? And we're not seeing the change that we would like to see. We're not seeing the transformation that we would like to see. Those areas are important, 
but they're not nearly as important as being delivered from sin and condemnation. That's first and foremost. I don't care if my life gets better. I don't care if all the Jericho walls fall down. If I don't know the Lord and I'm not saved and I'm not forgiven of sin and I'm not no longer condemned, well, then it's all for nothing. God wants to save us from sin first. Say sin first. Sin first, right? So that's why we looked at that in week one of our, of our series here. Paul says, I know that I'm bound by sin because when I want to do the right thing, when I know what the right thing is, when I tell myself I'm going to do the right thing, within minutes, within moments, I'm doing the wrong thing. He says, that means this. It's no longer I who sin. It's sin in me. Sin is in me. When you realize this as a man or woman, that sin is in you, that it has, it has permeated every area of your life. It is literally in your DNA. The only hope is to be delivered. You can't fix that. You can't change that. You can't extract that out of your DNA. You have to say, like Paul had to say, who is out there that can deliver me? Who has the, the keys to this prison of sin? Very important realization to come to. Paul says it like this. <clears throat> In uh, Romans 7, 24, at the end of him talking about how it's sin in him and he wants to do right, but he's always doing it wrong. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, there's no hope. I got to be delivered. Who's got the keys? Revelation 1, 18, Jesus says this. I am, he, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, he says. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. He says, I got the keys. That prison of sin and condemnation, nobody else can let you out. You can try to make yourself feel good. You can get with people who will pump you up and tell you, oh, you've changed so much. You're so great. Life is going to be perfect. That's a lie. Jesus says, I'm the only one that's got the keys. You may feel like you're free, but you're not free from sin without me, without these keys. So week one was, was a good week, an important week for this series. Week number two, we looked at deliverance from fear. We learned that fear is a strong motivator and a ruthless master. Fear is a strong motivator. It will cause you to do things and go in directions and be a part of things that you know you shouldn't be a part of, but it's a strong motivator. But it's also a ruthless master. Does not care about you, does not care about me, will use us until we're all used up and then go on to the next one like nothing ever happened. Hebrews 2.14 says this about Jesus, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release, say release, because we're bound, right? We're imprisoned. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear of death, living in bondage, living bound. God wants to release us from that fear and deliver us from that kind of fear. And it creeps up on us in a lot of different areas. My kids stayed last night uh, with my in-laws Mary and I, you know, my vacation's over as of today, not being back here, but going back to work tomorrow. And so wanted to spend some time just with her. So the kids stayed there all day and stayed the night there. But this typically happens to me where I start to worry like, man, what if, what if they're just going somewhere with the, with the in-laws? And what about getting in that car and driving to church this morning? And I'm excited about church and what God's going to do. But what if I get a call and they got an accident? I don't know if it happens to you, but your mind starts going. And what you realize, what I realize is that's fear. That's not concern and, and normal care for your child. That is a spirit of fear that is attacking me, keeping me from focusing on what I should be focusing on. So I'm down here worshiping because I, I prayed about it upstairs. I said, I don't want to be like that. They're going to be fine. If I didn't think they were going to be fine, I wouldn't have left them there. God, you're a good God. You love us. I don't need to be bound by this fear. So I'm sitting over here in the front row over here. I'm worshiping. I have my eyes closed. And then I open my eyes. I open my eyes and I see my little boys, I see my little girl down here at the front about to be prayed over. You know why? Because God is good. I don't have to be bound by fear. Even the moments I lost to that, he says, listen, you are a giant elephant. <laughs> Stop letting this little stake in the ground that the, that the enemy has planted in there that something is going to be taken from you. Stop letting that run your life. Don't be bound by fear. Don't be bound by fear. Be delivered. <clears throat> so there's those of us who, because of fear, we never come to God. 
We never come for that deliverance from sin, from condemnation, and we know where that ends. From week one, we know that you're going to hell, period, point blank. You don't come to Jesus for the keys out of that prison. You end up dying in that prison, you end up going to hell. There's also a lot of Christians, like I just explained, though, who have been freed from the prison of sin and condemnation, but they remain imprisoned in so many other areas of their life because of fear. You're living in the faith, but you're living in fear, ran by fear still. I use the example often of, you know, Jesus rising. And imagine if he never walked out of the tomb. He died, he overcame death, he's got life again, and there he is in the tomb. But the scriptures say he's not here for he has risen, and he went back out doing life, living life. But many of us as Christians, we get that new life, we're born again, but we stay in the tomb because we're afraid to come back out. When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, what did he say? He said, loose him and let him go. Don't leave him in that tomb. Don't leave him in that place of death. And when we're bound by fear, that's what it's like to be a Christian who is still bound by fear. It's to be a Christian who's been raised in newness of life, but has the grave clothes still on them and will not go back out and live in the life that God's given us. Afraid to stop certain things in our life and afraid to start new things in our life. So this morning, what I want to do as we finish uh, our service today as you can tell, we don't usually have this thing here. There's going to be a, a time for a special person that's going to be getting baptized here this morning. You'll see as we go through the service that baptism is not just something that Christians check off the bucket list of things that they need to do. It's a very important and special thing that God is doing in an individual. But for many of us, that fear of leaving something behind, the fear of starting something new, has kept us from getting baptized. <clears throat> letting fear run us rather than faith. Here's the good news this morning. If we desire, we can be delivered from living that kind of life, living in fear, seeing deliverance from sin, seeing deliverance from fear, and then this morning we're going to look at deliverance from comparison. Deliverance from comparison. We all have, many of us still do, use comparison to give ourselves value, to give our families value, to give our lives, our relationships value, we do that by comparing them to other people. How much are you worth? How good is your relationship? And you look at the next one like, oh baby, they're tore up. Let's hang out with them so we look really good. How much do you make? How much education do you have? That's how we value ourselves typically. We've, we've all done it at least in the past and many of us still are bound by this spirit of comparison. John chapter 21, verse 19 says this. Jesus is, is talking to, uh, to Peter, one of his disciples. It says, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on the, on the Lord's breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Amen. So Jesus is talking to Peter. What an amazing thing, number one, if the Lord would talk to you. And what Peter decides to do, he says, Lord, I know you're talking to me. I know you're calling me. I know you want me to follow you. But what about him? Jesus says, don't worry about him. Focus on yourself. Don't compare yourself to him. Don't worry about what I have for him versus what I have for you. Your life is not going to be about comparison. You worry about following me. I can't tell you how often this happens in my life and in the lives of the people that I know. Constantly comparing to the next person. We're at work, and how often do we say that? Well, what about her? What about him? Our relationships. What about her? What about him? This isn't just something that the Lord, I believe, would say from one disciple to another, don't compare. Any comparison with any other person, I think the Lord would tell us the same thing. Don't worry about them. Focus on yourself. See, your journey is your own. Your life is your own. You are the main character in the story that God is telling. I know that's hard for us to understand because we don't live in a world where that's a reality. But in the kingdom of God, it is a reality. You are the main character in the story. You're not here for my story. This is my story. You're living your story, and you are the main character. 
There aren't more important people in your story. God is completely concerned with you and what he's doing in your life. He's the director, and it's like this. Every morning he meets with you before filming. Every evening he meets with you again and he says, hey, I want to talk to you about how it went today, about the story and the vision that I have for your life and what we actually filmed. I want to talk to you about all the rest of those uh, uh, background actors and extras that were part of your day today. How did they play their role? Did they do what they were supposed to do? Because you are the main attraction. You are the main event. You are the story that I'm telling. But do we meet with him in the morning? Do we meet with him in the evening? Do you see yourself as the main event? Are you the main attraction? Are you the lead actor? Are you the lead actress? It's a pretty sad movie if you are the lead and you don't know it. <laughs> You're like, that movie sucked. It was about you. <laughs> Do your job. Psalm chapter 40, verse 5. The psalmist says, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. The thoughts that God has about you cannot be recounted. The thoughts and concerns that he has for you cannot be numbered. On a daily basis, God is thinking about you immensely. He is considering you immensely. He is aware of every little detail of your life. On a daily basis, if you tried, you could not recount to him the things that he thought about you. Already today, by 11.06, he's thinking about you. Verse 17, same chapter, Psalm verse 40, uh, the psalmist says this, But I'm poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. The Lord thinks about me. I'm poor. I'm needy. What that means is it doesn't matter what your lot in life is, how much you have or don't have, where you're from, where you've been, what you've done and what you have not done. It says this, it, no matter how poor and needy, no matter how wealthy and affluent you might be, the Lord thinks about you. And the psalmist is in awe of that. How could you really be thinking about me? And then he cries out this, Lord, be my deliverer. In every area of my life where I'm bound, deliver me. Be my deliverer. So how important are you to God this morning? A while back, I spoke at another church, and I told them that God would tilt the world in their favor. God will literally move you and move all of creation on your behalf. How many of you believe that this morning? Do we live like that? There's like two of us, me and Vanessa. <laughs> We're always walking like that, huh? <laughs> Everybody else, you ain't tilt nothing for me. Listen. I'm not lying to you. God will tilt the world. God will tilt all of creation on your behalf because he loves you and because you are individually important to him. I told you that uh, we went to the zoo and we also went to the Griffith Observatory because my brother-in-law told me that I should go there. And <clears throat> other than the fact that at the zoo, one of these zoo people tried to tell my kids that they came from apes, everything was all good. We're sitting there, and she was like an undercover zoo person. Because you couldn't tell. She didn't have like the, the brown zoo get up on. We just were looking at, literally we're looking at apes. And there's just the five of us and this lady standing there. And, and the kids are looking, and she, and she says, oh, you see those? Those are part of the ape family. They're not part of the chimpanzee family. And I'm like, oh, cool. This lady must love the zoo. She's going to tell my kids something. <laughs> and then she went a little bit overboard. She looked at him, and she said, you know, we're part of the ape family. And then all in unison, all three of my kids said, we are, like that, right? So me and Mary are caught off guard. Like, we're Christians, and who is this lady telling my kids they're apes? I was like, look, is this a racial thing? <laughs> so, so we're caught off guard. Like, we're the, the pastor, like, I'm supposed to do something. <laughs> so they, they look at her, and they say, we are. And then, like, good disciples, they all three look at me. Dad, like, is this true? And I said, I said, uh, what was the question I asked him? I said, I said, what are you to the kids, right? So it's, it's me and Mary, then my three kids, and the lady right there. And I looked at the kids, and I said, what are you? And the boys were a little bit stumped. You know, it's rough on the boys. <laughs> but Naomi was like, we're humans. 
And I said, that's right, girl. And I said, who made you? She said, Jesus. I said, that's right. We believe in Jesus. We believe that we're created in the image of God. And we all turned and walked away. <laughs> right? But as we walked away, I was like, man, why we let that little lady, like, kind of bully us a little bit? Like, she was so bold and so confident that we came from apes. I'm like, we know God, yet we're bound, right? I got to ask my little eight-year-old daughter to defend us. <laughs> I did. I was so proud. I was like, what you want, girl? You want ice cream, cotton? You have all that. <laughs> Giving her a high five. I look at the boys like, get it together. <laughs> All that to talk about the observatory. I wasn't even going to talk about the zoo. We went to the observatory. <laughs> and we're looking at all this stuff. And, and you see the sky. And they got all these, these telescopes and all this different stuff. And I was a little bit challenged. Like, babe, we got to come back and learn some stuff so we can teach the kids. They probably know more than us. But as we were looking through all these things, and, and it reminded me of scripture, how the Lord talks about all these things that people have been able to look at and to find and to use the stars. It's all things that he put there. We like to take that and have pride and say, we did that and we figured that out. No, you found something that the Lord placed there a whole long time ago, right? So we saw the wonder of God's creation. We looked through all these different things and it reminded me of Psalm 19, chapter 1. I've been reading through the Psalms and, and it's, it's funny how the Lord works. His Spirit says that he'll bring to your remembrance everything that he's told you and taught you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Psalm 19, verse 1 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. He's talking about the heavens. He's talking about the stars. He's talking about the sun, right? There's no, uh, no, no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run his race. Before I go on, that's verse 5. It says that God made a tabernacle for the sun, just like this is the tabernacle for his people, right? It's the place where they belong, where they can actually do what they've been designed to do, right? So he says, I made a tabernacle for the sun, and it runs its race like a strong man who's so excited to get out there and do what he's supposed to do. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber to see his wife. He says that's what it's like every day when the sun comes up. He says he speaks to the whole world by that. Then in verse 6 he says, Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end of heaven. God had that in his word before we had telescopes that could tell you that the sun was on a circuit. How does David know this? Because the Spirit of God. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. God says that even just the law of nature and how the sun and the moon and the stars work, it says that it's so good and it reveals so much and it speaks so clearly that it will literally convert the soul of a person who's looking for God. So how much must God love you if he says, I'll tilt that world, I'll suspend what I've created and what I've established on your behalf in order to deliver you? That's what deliverance is about when God says, I've established something that reveals who I am. It's literally set in stone that sun's been on that same circuit for since the day he said, let there be light. And he says, I'll suspend that because I love you as an individual so much. Read through your scriptures. There's a story of a man. And he said, in order to confirm what you said, I want the sun to go backwards. I want the time to go backwards. They were using a sundial at the time and God did it because he loves every individual and he wants to deliver us. Luke 8, 24. So here's this group of people that need to be delivered. They're calling on the Lord. They're in this ship that's sinking. Waves are crashing on them. It says, they came to him and they awoke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And they ceased. And there was a calm. But he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. He suspends what's natural. The wind and the water, they cause waves. You know, look at people that like to surf. They'll tell you how that works with the moon and gravity and all that stuff. But God says he wakes up. His people are perishing. They need to be saved. They need to be delivered. And he just rebukes the wind. I'm the one that made that wind, he says. I made this ocean. They listened to me. Isn't it funny that if we knew who made us, that we might want to listen to him too? 
They say, who is this that commands even the wind and the water? He's literally tilting the world on their behalf. He's stopping what is so normal and so natural in order to show them who he is and in order to deliver them. I think uh, Gary said, if you come to Jericho and you've already prayed and thought about what you want to be delivered from, then you can actually expect God to move in that particular area. It's similar here. If you expect and you know who God is and that he will do these things for you, you will come to him with an expecting heart and spirit saying, Lord, I need to be delivered. And I expect you to do that. Not because I deserve it or I want it so bad, but because that's who you are. You are a deliverer. In order to deliver us, he's literally tilting the world on our behalf. When we feel like we're fighting an uphill battle all the time, anybody ever feel like that? Like you're constantly fighting an uphill battle? You're constantly having something that's coming against you? Is it possible that as the Lord is trying to deliver us and tilting the world on our behalf, that we're fighting against him, swimming upstream, fighting against gravity, and he's trying to deliver us, and that's why life feels so hard, because we won't just let him do what he's trying to do in our life. That's called refusing to be delivered. Many of us say, I want to be delivered, God, help me. I'm tired of living like this. I'm tired of this issue. I'm tired of constantly comparing myself to other people. Do something, God. He tilts the world, and then we fight back for it. In Exodus 13, when the children of Israel are delivered out of, out of Egypt, it says this, It came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So listen, God takes the children of Israel out of Egypt, which means he delivered them, and he wants to take them to the promised land, and there is a short route to your promises, to your destiny. And God says this, instead of taking them the short route, because they'll have to actually fight Philistines and go to war that way, he says, I'm going to tilt the world and make them go around on a more safe track. It's going to take longer, but it'll be safer, and they'll actually get where I'm trying to take them. I want you to picture your life right now. Wherever you are with God and this idea of, him knowing where you need to go and what it takes to get there. And imagine him tilting the world to get you to go where he wants you to go. How you need to go to get where you're going. Because he loves you. And just like the children of Israel, when he delivers, he doesn't just deliver so you can say, oh, thanks. It's because there's a promised land that he's trying to get you to. What I feel like is that many times in my life, if I would just be still and let God do what he wants to do in this area of deliverance, I'd get where it is that I'm trying to go. But I fight against it. I grab on to things. <laughs> I hold on to things. Right? I crawl back. I hang a rope because I know he's been tilted. Let me hang a rope so I can grab this thing and crawl back to where I'm comfortable and where I want to be. There's a lot of different things we need to be delivered from, but for me, this area of comparison to other people is probably one of the big ones. I saw it before getting saved, and then after getting saved, um, didn't see it until got into ministry. Right? I'm not talking about ministry like passion like I, like I do now. I'm talking about like I was flipping the overhead projector signs. We didn't have like TVs and stuff, and I'd be like, whoever flipped them on Wednesday night, I'm definitely going to flip better than they did on Sunday morning. <laughs> because that'll show that I'm a better Christian than they are. They don't know the song. They don't know that they're supposed to flip it right now so you can see those words before you have to slow down while you're singing. And then I've seen that throughout all of ministry. Well, how many people go to your church? Well, how many people have gotten saved and how many are, are just Christian transplants? How many people are having, how many uh, salvations, how many baptisms? How long have you been pastoring? There's this comparison that's supposed to give you value in the kingdom, but you don't find that anywhere in scripture. That's something that the enemy does, right? That's where it started, right? God created all of us. He created all the hosts of heaven, and it says that Satan wanted to be like him. He was comparing himself to God. He said, I want to be like you. Why are you getting all the worship? Just because you created everything, let's just pretend like I did. Let's just pretend like we came from apes, and then I can get some glory for making up some nonsense about how it all started and got to where it is. And I won't let you test me, because if, if you could test it and actually see that it's false, I'll just tell you it took 300 million years. So that way, if you believe it, you'll never see the next 300 million years when it happens again. 
It's the same spirit of comparison and of pride. How much more joy would you have today if you were not comparing yourself to anyone? Anyone, for any reason. So I thought about it. I want to leave you with these three things, things to aspire to in the area of comparison. What you should be aspiring towards. Number one, aspire to be contrary. To be contrary, not the norm, the exception. Contrary to what others are doing and others are believing and the way that others are behaving. Yesterday, Mary and I went to the mall. We were in uh, H&M, and I just feel awkward being in H&M. People look at me like, you're not supposed to be in here, bro. Foot Locker's over there. <laughs> so I'm like wandering around waiting for Mary to finish H&Ming. And I see this young lady. She's probably late teens, early 20s, and, and please, don't take this the wrong way. She, she had on like, kind of like a short cut top t-shirt, really tight pants. She was a little bit of a, of a bigger girl. And in my mind, I'm judging her. Not like the right way, like godly way, just like a normal judging, like, like you shouldn't be dressed like that. You shouldn't be looking like that out here in H&M. And after I unfairly judged her, I heard her say, no, I like my body, and this is the only one I've got. So just because you've been marching to the band of what the world tells you beauty should look like, doesn't mean that I have to conform to what you think. And I was like, dang. <laughs> then I heard her say, I'm contrary to everything that you've seen and everything that you've heard, and that's okay. She said, that's a good thing, and it's refreshing. And then I realized, man, she said a lot without us actually talking. <laughs> I'm contrary. I'm not what you think. I'm not what you've seen. I don't care what you're used to. I don't care what the world says and what TV says and what magazines say. I'm contrary to all that. And just because you're all jacked up and tore up, don't put that on me. I'm going to be who I want to be. So last night, I started thinking about that as Christians. We should be contrary wherever we go, and we should be saying a lot without words. There should be something different about us. When people look at you, when people look at the way that you behave, when people look at the way that you carry yourself, you should be saying a lot without actually having to say anything. To be able to say that we're not in competition with others in order to determine our self-worth through comparison is special. I think people can recognize that. When you meet somebody that's not comparing themselves to other people, it's, it's refreshing, but it's also convicting, right? Like you're, you're naturally talking about who you are or what you have or where you've been or what you've done, and they don't talk about any of that because they're not comparing themselves to you or to anybody else, and they don't find value in those things. And it's like weird. It's like, man, what's wrong with you? I'm not bound by comparison. I'm secure in who I am. I know where my worth comes from. I know where my value comes from. I don't need a position, I don't need a title. I can have or I cannot have. I'm not comparing myself to anybody. There are a lot of people who, who think they're doing that, but they just have that I don't care mentality. We all either used to be that or know people like that right now. You might be sitting next to somebody, don't point any fingers. But I don't care, that's just who I am. That's how I am, and if you don't like it, I don't need you anyway. That's not the spirit of like non-comparison. <laughs> This is the spirit of arrogance and pride and devaluing yourself in order to feel good about how you decided to carry yourself, right? I don't have to care what people think. That's not the same thing as non-comparison, as being contrary. We need to be able to do that without devaluing other people, without devaluing ourselves. How good and how refreshing would it be if we were contrary? King David, He's chosen, and listen to how contrary he was and how a typical comparison would have disqualified him from being king. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 4. It says, Samuel did what the Lord said, went to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming. He's a prophet. And they said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. 
Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Right? He looks at Eliab right here. He says, This is the one. Look at him. He's tall and he's handsome. He sits in the front row. Girls, it's Eliab right there. <laughs> he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've refused him. No, again, girls, <laughs> been refused. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. He was contrary. He wasn't big. He wasn't strong. He wasn't the pride of the family. He wasn't the leader. He was a little shepherd boy, forgotten about by his father. His father showed all the rest of the boys to Samuel, thinking this might be the one. But, but David was contrary. He wasn't like everybody else. He was tending sheep, being faithful. He didn't even care when everybody else was getting marched before Samuel. He wasn't crying and complaining about other people getting to have the spotlight or potentially be chosen. He was just secure in who he was and what God was doing in his life. To be contrary is an important thing. To not be the same. Second thing I think we need to aspire towards, aspire to be complimentary. Not complimentary like you're always telling people nice things even if they're not true. That's not the kind of complimentary I'm talking about. Complimentary means to be uh, something that goes well with something else, right? It's complimentary. If you go to a nice restaurant, right, you'll order your food, and the waiter will say, can I suggest a wine that will go complimentary with that meal, right? What they're saying is the steak is good by itself, but oh, if you add this complimentary drink to it, it's going to make everything better. So you have, like, going wine tasting, which I've never done. I don't drink. I don't like wine. But I know that you go, and the whole point is to see which one's the best. And everyone's going to choose at the end. You go to, like, a cook-off, and everybody wants to know who cooks the best. And we can do that after church today. I want to taste everything <laughs> that you guys make. But it's all about what's the best. We're going to compare all of them, right? A complimentary is, like, if you look at the whole meal on a plate, they're not, com they're not in competition or comparing to one another. The side dishes aren't saying, I want to be the steak. It's just all there together. When you get it all together, you're blessed. See, with food, you have the main dish and the side dishes. That's just life. With movies, you have the leading actor, and then you have supporting actors and actresses. But in the kingdom, there's no main dish and side dishes. There's no leading actor and supporting actors. Everybody is uniquely created and everybody is uniquely valuable and infinitely valuable to God. We don't have to compare in order to have value, in order to have worth. But if you decide to be complimentary, you make everything better instead of everything worse. At the end of a night where you show up somewhere, do people say, like, man, that, that, that was a pretty, like, sad experience and a worthless night but man when Mary showed up it just changed the tide she was complimentary and things got better man that 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 experience was uncomfortable they were cracking jokes and it was getting to that point where they were being rude and condescending but man when Patrick showed up things turned right do you make things that are bitter sweet do you make things that are painful easier to bear when God says that we're supposed to be complimentary, what he says is that, look, this life is going to be hard. 
you're going to see the full end of the spectrum. Good things, bad things, easy things, difficult things, and we're supposed to come in and be complementary to the experiences that people are having. Just the right amount of something. David is just anointed king. Paul calls it being all things to all men. So David, we know he just got anointed. He's now the king, or he's now the, the, the next in line to be king. Listen to what 1 Samuel 16 says, right after we read to verse 12. It says, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose, went to Ramah, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul was the king at the time. And, dis and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play, play it with his hand, and when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful player, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. David came to Saul, stood before him, and he loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, Please let David stand before me, for, the, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Can you be any less focused on comparison and any better at being complimentary than that? He knows he's the next king. He knows that Saul is sitting on the throne that belongs to him. But instead of comparing himself to Saul and saying all the problems that Saul has, and look, that spirit wouldn't be upon you if you were doing right by God, it says he loves Saul and that he played for him. David was all things to all men, just like Paul said. He could have fought for it. He could have been king, but he says, I want to be complimentary. Your spirit is distressed. I'm going to play this harp, and I'm going to make you feel better. How many of us are willing to be complimentary, if we're honest this morning? How many of us are looking for, in a situation, how can I help? How can I make this person better? How can I make this person more successful? How can I make this person more capable of being victorious in their life? Or are we bound by comparison? Shepherd boy turned king who humbles himself and says, I'll just play the harp. I'll just love on you and worship for you and encourage you. I think it's harder to do than we think. So aspire to be contrary, aspire to be complimentary, and finally, aspire to be a catalyst. A catalyst is something that causes things that are dormant or dead to come to life, or it causes things that are working and moving, but moving slowly to all of a sudden accelerate and move fast. We want to be catalyst in the church. We want to be catalyst in this world that we live in. Stop comparing yourself to others and breathe life into them. I'll challenge you to think about it yourself. How often do you find yourself talking about dead Christians or dead non-believers versus how often we find ourselves praying for them and trying to breathe life into their situation and circumstance? We have a young lady in a few minutes here who's gonna be getting baptized. It's pretty special. Her Walk with God has been very short. Known a lot of things over her life, but literally gave her life to the Lord a little bit around about a month ago and has been meeting with us, talking with us, reading some things, going through some baptism stuff, and is ready to get baptized this morning. But it's not because of me. It's ultimately because of God. It's not because of this church in particular. You know what it really is? Her mother and her sister have been just giving everything to the Lord and recently got, got baptized and they are a catalyst in her life. Things that would not be happening if it wasn't for them are happening in her life because they've been a catalyst. What's happening in somebody else's life this morning because you're a catalyst? What's happening that would not be happening if it wasn't for you? Your love, your walk with God, your heart playing, whatever it might be. Last scripture I want to close with 
is looking at David as a catalyst. All the, the scriptures have been 1 Samuel 16 and now 1 Samuel 17. I'm just going to read from verse 33. The catalyst. <laughs> says, Saul said to David, we, we, know, we know right before this, he's anointed king. He comes to, to worship for Saul, becomes his armor bearer, which means everywhere Saul goes, Literally, David carries his armor. They're about to be a battle. Here you go. You didn't have to carry it. Your full strength. Go ahead and fight. I'm your armor bearer, and I'm a worshiper for you to lead you into the presence of God and to give healing and strength and refreshing to you. And literally, right after that, he goes back home from being with the king and takes care of sheep. 1 Samuel 17, 33, Saul said to David, David comes back out, giving them food. They're about to battle. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it. And I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. God. David feels different about God than most people. There's an army, we sang this morning, there's an army rising up, right? But do we really feel like we're an army rising up? And when the battle comes, are we ready to fight? Saul says, you can't win. David says, you don't know me like that. <laughs> David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. David took them off. I can't compare myself to you. I'm not you. I'm not going to walk like you. I'm not going to fight like you. I'm not going to wear what you wear. We are different. I can be victorious how God has called me to be victorious. He took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in the shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I'll strike you, and I'll take your head from your body. <laughs> oh, I love David. So... There's so many amazing things. For 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath would come. There's a valley. The Philistines would be up on one side. The Israelites would be up on the other side. they come down to the valley, and Goliath would stand there, and he'd just talk trash. You guys are punks. Your God ain't real. Look at how bound you are. None of you have victory. I, you want me to go to your church, but you're still doing the same things that we were doing together? Why would I go there? I serve my own God. I'm a giant in this world. I don't have to be complimentary to anybody. They're all the side dishes. I'm the main dish. <laughs> For 40 days and 40 nights, this is the same group of people who have been delivered from Egypt and conquered and conquered and been taken and going into the promised land. And now here they are with King Saul looking at the rest of his armies being taunted by, by this Philistine. And David, though, he's a catalyst. <laughs> They weren't going anywhere. They were saved. They were God's people, but they were not moving forward. They were not taking ground. They were, they were uh, literally stopped in their tracks. David comes up to him and says, look, it ain't even about me. I know who my God is. The same way he's always delivered, he's going to deliver me in this situation. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to come at me with all that stuff you have, and at the end of this, I'm going to be standing here with your head in my hand. Now imagine... If you read through the rest of these scriptures, I hope you do, 
And you wonder why David becomes king and the army loves him and they follow him. He was a catalyst. People that probably would have never accomplished anything in their life after that day and seeing what David did, they were energized. They were empowered. They saw what was available to them and they began to take it. They began to take ground. David had an armor bearer of his own. David becomes king. Even when he gets exiled, he takes a bunch of ragtag people like some of us are and he creates an army out of them. He's just a catalyst for things to move forward and for things to grow. I feel like many of us can be that. If we stop focusing on comparing ourselves to others and you figure out, what do I got? If all I got is a few rocks and a sling, but if I use it right, I can empower people to go places that they couldn't go otherwise and do things they couldn't do otherwise. I watch it happen, I've seen it happen. Worship team, can you come up here? My prayer in the area of deliverance from comparison is that we would just use the blueprint that the Lord lays out for us time and time again. Jesus says, it's by my word and it's by my spirit that you can be contrary. You can turn the world upside down. It said that about the first Christians. When they came into a city, they'd say, hey, those, that group of people that turned the world upside down, they came here. You know, the, the young lady I, I mentioned, and I don't know what her faith is like. I didn't talk to her. You know, just, just judged by, by what I saw. But that spirit of being different, that spirit of being contrary, I wonder how recognizable we are as Christians. I wonder if people would judge us and say, that's a Christian. That's a believer. That's somebody who lives different, walks different, talks different, right? They're not going to let me tell their kids that they're apes. <laughs> They're not gonna let me say that, hey, it's all about getting yours. They're not gonna let me talk about other Christians and talk about church. They're gonna live contrary. They're gonna speak contrary. They're gonna be bold. They're gonna be faithful. They're gonna be strong and worship the same way they do in the church, outside of the church. Are we contrary? Are we contrary? Are you contrary? Are you different? Are we a group of complementary Christians? The Bible says that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to make other things taste better. <laughs> we're complementary. The steak's all good, but I know some of you real chefs, you know that you gotta put a rub on it, right? And you gotta tenderize it, and you gotta marinate it. It's the same steak, but because of that salt and that rub and that marination, it's better. They say we don't know how to eat steak because my wife and I, we tell them butterfly it and crispy it. <laughs> well done, extra well done. And I pour a bunch of A1 steak sauce on it. And they're like, you ruined the steak. I don't care, it tasted good to me. <laughs> Some people might look at you and say, look, the way you live or the way you serve or the church you go to or the way you pray or the way you read, you ruined it. That's not what a Christian's supposed to be like. You know what? Well, it tastes good to me. Amen. The people who are around you are growing. Your family and friends are coming to faith. Other people are getting baptized. They can talk all they want, but you're complimentary and you're doing things. The last one is I think that we should be a crazy group of catalysts. Before knowing the Lord, all I left in my wake was death and destruction. If I came through your house, if I came through, I was a friend of one of your kids, if, if you let me anywhere near anybody you loved and cared about, it was a bad decision. I was going to leave death and destruction behind me and then I'd be gone. You wouldn't even see me to deal with the cleanup. Now one of the things I love the most about being a Christian is that I can be a catalyst. I can leave life behind me. We can either go forward together, but when I come through... When I've had time with you, when we've experienced time together, we can look back and say, man, that was good. Something good came of that. There was life after that. There was a release and a love and a, and a, and a giving and a joy. He didn't leave death and destruction anymore. Man, I wish that we could all say that all the time. I can't say that all the time. Let me clarify. <laughs> but I can say it a lot more than I used to be able to. I tell people in this church, the reason we do our Bible study every Wednesday night, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I don't know if you're going to be here for one week or if you're going to be here for a year, if you're going to be here for 10 years, but however long you're here, you're going to hear the word of God and you're going to be better for it when you leave. I'm not going to have to look back and say, oh man, I wish I would have told him about Jesus. I wish I would have told him about the word. 
You'll leave here today knowing a little bit more about David. <laughs> knowing a little bit more about the God who delivers. Knowing a little bit more about not having to compare yourself to others because God says that you're the ultimate. You're the star of the show. He did it all for you. When you leave here, when you go home, when you go to your room tonight, all the extras will all be gone. It'll just be you and the director. <laughs> talking about your story, talking about your film. The alternative is we can be bound by comparison. But I'd rather be delivered. I'd rather be delivered, not see people as competition, not see people as a means to an end. Be delivered from that. See them as valuable just like you're valuable. Let's stand. I want to pray. In a minute, we're going to worship and we're going to pray over the young lady who's going to be uh, baptized here this morning. But before we do that, where we started this morning, we said that the number one thing, the first thing, the primary thing that God wants to deliver us from is sin and condemnation. And Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What he's saying is, look, I can't do it on my own. It don't matter who you are here this morning. There's no answer for sin other than the blood of Christ. You don't have to get better. You don't have to act better. You don't have to look better. You don't have to do things. You don't have to stop doing things. All you have to do is say, like Paul did, man, sin is in me. It's not on me. It's not something I picked up and I carry with me, and when I decide to let it go, I'm going to let it go. No, it's in me. I can't stop if I want to. Many of us tried to stop a lot of things, and we never could. I remember so many times I'd say, oh, now I'm going to change. <laughs> the best news that you ever come to hear is that Jesus says, I know you can't change, which is why I came. Nobody can change. All you can do is humble yourself and say, save me. This isn't an offer I give to you. It's the word of God. He says, any who would believe would be saved. If you believe that God could come to the earth, live a perfect life in order to be able to pay your debt of sin, all you have to do is say, Lord, will you forgive me? I want your perfect life and I'll give you my jacked up Torah one. So before we do anything else, I want to ask, if you're here and you've never done that and you want to this morning, you want to really introduce, be introduced to Jesus. You really want to know who he is, why he came, why we're here. We're not here for anything else other than to thank Jesus that he came and died for our sins. But it's personal. It's not like a, a group on group discount. If somebody you know that got in, you get the half price. No, it's, it's personal. You have to accept them yourself. But it's just a decision. Read through the scriptures. Talk to the people who are here. The, the sky's not going to part. Lightning is not going to strike this place. You're not going to get in your car and say, Lord, if you're real, drive this car. It's not going to happen. You have to make a decision. I'm a sinner, and I want to be saved. That's the truth today. That's the truth tomorrow. That's the truth five years from now. It never, ever, ever is going to change. So if you feel him knocking, you're tired of living the hard knock life. He says, I'm at the door of your heart. I'm knocking. If you just open, I'll come in. If that's you and you hear him knocking, you want to be saved this morning, would you just raise your hand so I can see you? I want to be able to pray for you and pray with you. You know you came in with a burden of sin and you don't want to walk out with it. If that's you, man, it's the most important thing, the most important decision. Anybody this morning. When I gave my life to Jesus, I was in a parking lot of Staples Center in downtown L.A., no preacher, no nothing else, walked outside and said, God, I need to be delivered. If you're real, I'll serve you. But you got to be real for me. And I gave my life to Jesus. It's just a decision. Anybody this morning want to make that decision? Give your life to Jesus. Let him take your sin. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. For those of you who are here and you are saved, you've already been forgiven for your sins. Anybody need prayer to be delivered from the spirit of comparison? You know in your heart this morning, you're sitting in this room and you're bound by comparison. You compare yourself a lot to other people, women to other women, men to other men, financial state, education, friendships, behavior, attitude, selfishness, whatever it is, you find yourself comparing yourself a lot. Our God is a God who delivers time and time again. But we have to ask. That he would either show you how strong you are, that you can walk away from that stake, or that he would break the chain for you. Nothing is just going to happen. Are there any here 
Just raise your hand. You compare yourself a lot, amen? You find value in comparison? Amen. Anybody else this morning? Amen, I see you. We don't have to live like that anymore, guys. We don't have to be bound by that. Imagine living your life where you knew that you had all the value you would ever have and you didn't have to get it from anybody else or comparing yourself to anybody else. Anybody else, before we pray, that's you this morning. You don't want to live like that anymore. You want to leave this place knowing that all of your worth, you already have it. There's nothing that you can do, no more that you can gain. God says, you're worth everything. And I want you to know that this morning. If you don't feel that and, and you don't live that way, but you want to, would you raise your hand one more time? I want to see you so that we can pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Lord, these are sons and daughters of yours. They're not orphans. They're not slaves. You know their situation. You know their circumstance, Lord. I ask that you would help us to see what the enemy is doing to us, Lord.